I, uh, I'd like us to look in uh, the book of Psalm 73, because I understand that you're in a journey, on a journey of prayer and fasting and, and growth as a church family in this season of life. And how often do we need that in our own personal lives, is to have growth and insight into God's Word. I don't know you all and your personal stories necessarily. All, I don't know you all well. But I'm saying that many of you I know are people of the Word. And I've been a person of the Word for many years as well. And whether you're new in God's Word or whether you are, it's been a part of your life since you've been a child, I do not know. But what I want to suggest is this. There's many verses or sections of the Bible that we have um, read and read again and followed through again. And what I've learned in my life, and maybe you've learned it in yours, you can read the same verse or same passage many times, but the next time there's a new meaning that comes out of it for you. The Word of God doesn't change, but the application in our lives might change. We might respond in a new way because at this season of our life today is different than it was the first time we heard that verse or that section five years ago, when we were a child or a teenager or whenever it was that you understood or heard God's Word. And so today, I want to start with the idea that God, in his, through His Holy Spirit, through the written Word of God, changes our hearts and our minds and gives us new insight at times for, for ideas or scriptures that we're familiar with, but today is a new day. And the world in which we live is a crazy world today. And the world that many of you are experiencing has changed maybe from what it was a year ago or five years ago or 20 years ago. And so as we go to God's Word today, I hope that we can gain insight, fresh insight, new insight by the help of the Holy Spirit of God who teaches us and trains us in God's Word. And so in Psalm 73, I'd like to focus in on the idea here, it kind of joining in the theme of your church right now, experiencing God during a season of doubt, a season of struggle, and how God is true, and he wakes us up, and he gives us a new idea, a new thought, and new help in today's world differently maybe than maybe we felt we needed it yesterday or five years ago. And so Psalm 73 is a beautiful section of Scripture for us to remind ourselves about what God is like and what he wants from us and how our own hearts can wander or struggle in certain seasons and by God's use of prayer in our lives and pursuing him, we can have strength and vigor in ways that we need today that maybe we didn't think we needed it two, five, uh, two or three years ago, if that makes sense. So Psalm 73, verse 1, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. I know you have different versions that we use here. But in Psalm 73, verse 1, the first big idea here is that the psalmist himself states that what he knows to be true. And what a great starting point. When we have a real-life struggle in our life, if you have one of those, and if you don't have one today, hey, wait a few weeks or months, you might have one coming. I'm not trying to jinx anybody here, but I'm just saying there's realities that our, our, our lives ebb and flow a lot of times. And we need each other to walk together in any of the seasons any one of us faces along the way here. 
But in Psalm 73, one, the psalmist starts with a bold, confident conviction of what he knows to be true. And it says this in my translation, the English Standard Version. Verse one, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And here's a conviction he starts with, truly God is good to the people of God, to Israel, to those who are true at heart. And so I don't know your hearts, God does, but he's true to himself. He's true to what, is, what he said to his believers, to his people. And so the first big idea here is that he stands to something that he's true. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But then that infamous word, but as for me, in other words, hey, for my life, something else happened. I knew God was true, but look at now what happened to me. And I'd like us to spend a few minutes in God's word here about this season of doubt. And so there's an evolution of a season of doubt that happened to the psalmist. This is Asaph, who was a godly worship leader. Asaph was known as a worship leader in the sanctuary, but he goes through this season of doubt. And I don't want to predict any of us what we're going through, but I want to say that even as a believer myself, since I've been about 10 years old, and I've had a couple periods of time where I felt not just thought, I felt doubt come over me about my faith. Now, by God's grace, we're going to talk about that. There's confidence and conviction and return to him, yes. But I want to say, I'm one to say that I've had doubts at different seasons of my life, and maybe you have as well. So let's look a little bit at what God's word says about the evolution of doubt that can show up in our life in a season of life. And so this, uh, starting in verse, uh, let me just go on here. But as for me, in verse 2 he says, My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, right there, he is being honest about what happened to him. I don't know your story, what happened to any of us. I want to tell a little bit my story, but it's not about me either. It's about our stories, about there's certain seasons where our feet, our spiritual feet, our legs almost come out from underneath us. And I don't know, have you felt that way? But your feet had almost stumbled. And here's what the psalmist is saying. God is good to Israel. Yes, he is. But as for me, my feet stumbled. I felt that I was struggling. I nearly slipped. And why was that? Verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, I don't know what your soul talk is like. What I mean by soul talk is when you're kind of alone thinking or feeling or noticing things or you're by yourself and your mind begins to wonder, your, your soul talk comes alive, and you're kind of saying things on your inner person, inner man or inner woman. You're, there's, you're like, huh, huh. And you start noticing other people. Now, I don't know how many of you are Facebookers. I used to be. I used to be a Facebooker. 
I'm slowly returning to Facebook because I do have a lot of connections from my childhood and teenage years, and I think there's some ministry that can happen through Facebook. But, but, as for me, by looking at other people's stories, it's easy to begin to think or dwell or meditate or soul talk about what they're experiencing, what they have, what they're enjoying, and what I'm not. And we end up having a sense of a feeling or thoughts or quietness. Of course, this is never on Sunday. It's always Monday through Saturday, right? Okay, because Sunday we're very holy and very spiritually minded. But all of a sudden comes Monday or Friday night or some other time, and there's these thoughts, these ideas, these skeptic thoughts that come into our hearts this way. And notice what it says here. It says in verse 3, for I, saw, I was envious of the arrogant. Have you ever been envious of the arrogant? Oh my goodness. I hate to admit it, but I have. I've looked at the arrogance or the pride or the wealthy or the seemingly successful. And of course, most people on Facebook always put their best foot forward and they show you their greatest look, their greatest outfit, their greatest this or that, or what they're doing, or their fun, or their vacations, or their money. And it's like, oh, look at me. Oh, celebrate with me. Here's what we had for dinner. It's like, who cares what you had for dinner? But you know what I mean? It's on Facebook. But I'm just saying there's this whole idea that we become envious of this. And I looked at this book in Psalm 73, starting in verse 4 through verse 12, and I counted in those uh, eight verses or so the number of times that this writer, Asaph, uses the word they or their, T-H-E-I-R. He's looking at them, they or their. And I counted, I think it was nine times that he's focusing on they or their. And let me go through some of those very quickly here. Verse 4, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That's a compliment, by the way. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. In other words, he's looking at they and all that they're experiencing. And, he gets, and, and Facebook wasn't around in 700 B.C. when this book was written. But the human heart was around then, and he, Asaph, is seeing things going on as if it was Facebook Live. And he's like seeing the realities of the people of his day, and his mind and his heart, his soul talk, is being stirred up by what he sees going on around him. There's no pangs in their death. Their bodies are sleek and fat. They're not in trouble like the rest of us. They are not stricken like the rest of the mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts over, overflow with follies. There's a different translation that says, the imagination of their heart runs rapid. The imaginations of their heart runs rapid. In other words, they see things, they enjoy things, they have things, they experience things. They are seemingly without restraint. 
There's no restraints. There's no limits to what they're experiencing. The life, the happiness, the joy, the pleasures, the wickedness, the realities are just, it's like, who cares? It's just alive to them. And he goes on here. He says, the, their follies swell out through fatness. I mentioned that. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Here, he's listing what his imagination is taking hold of him. And so there's an axiom I'd like to put on the screen here. It's a principle, and the principle is this. Coveting always enlarges the object of desire. When you covet something, you enlarge in your own mind and your own heart and your own feeling and your own soul talk. You enlarge what it really is. When we covet someone else or we covet what they have or what they're doing or what they've experienced and we long for it ourselves, it gets bigger than reality. It's bigger than what's true to them, but for us, we're living as if it matters more. And there's things in this world, this world's crazy. There's a lot of difficulties in this world and a lot of pain people are experiencing, but we don't see it. We just look at the, the exact, we exaggerate the longings, the envy that we have for people around us and this is what Asaph is saying in 700 years B.C. And again, with no Facebook or Instagram or whatever. And he's, he's giving this sense of attention that his own flesh, his own soul gave to those around him because he could see and almost taste what they have, what they're enjoying, what they're getting away with, what they're pursuing, their imaginations are, and there's no restraint. And so we see that there's this sense of envy that's taken him so strong and so a lot. A second big principle, I think, is here, exaggeration of the other's benefits. In other words, he's looking at the wicked and the violence. He says the arrogant, the, the wicked, and he names all these kinds of people in his day, and he's exaggerating in his own mind what they're experiencing. He looks at it and he goes, oh, man, look at that. They're enjoying that. They're having that. They're getting away with that. It seems like there's no problem in their life. There's no frailty in their life. There's no cost to pay. There's no consequences. And he's living with this reality that in his own mind and heart, he's exaggerating the benefits of that kind of life. I don't know if you ever feel that way. I have felt that way a few times in my life. I don't do it all the time. I remember being a teenager at Hayward High School, and I think I was the only one who named the name of Christ among all my friends. And so there was a lot of other things going on at Hayward High that I wasn't involved with. But quietly, I wanted to have a lot of that same kind of experience. I was a newer Christian as a teenager. I actually went to, started going to this church when I was in a, a ninth grade. And I remember 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th grades at Hayward High School. I saw a lot of friends. I played a lot of sports. I was with band. I had a lot of popularity going on. There's a lot of people around me. But I don't know if there was one or two other Christians out of all that student body that I knew. But all I know is that in my own quietness, I was longing for what I knew some of those people were living like. And I wanted to have it 
and I got close a few times. I didn't deeply get into what they were into, but I noticed that there was this sense of my own quiet soulishness, my soul talk going when I was away from the church family on Sunday, uh, what I was feeling during the week at Hayward High in the evenings. And it was an interesting thing, and I think the psalmist had given us that insight right here. He's kind of talking honestly about how he began to exaggerate the benefits of those people's life and consequences, looking at only the things that seemed to be pleasurable, desirable, or I wish I had it for me, when in fact, I just had my 50th reunion at Hayward High last June. Can you believe that? I know I only look 35 years old, but really, I'm, I'm past that age. The 50th anniversary or reunion, I had probably at least three people that came up to me at Hayward High where we had our reunion uh, last June. They came up to me and they knew in high school that I was a Christ follower, although I didn't know they weren't a Christ follower then. But they talked to me 50 years later about how God has rescued their life and how they're a new person right now. And I was blown away with joy at hearing that some of them now know Jesus for themselves. But their life in high school was nothing like it was once they met the Lord. They became a new man or woman, and their life has changed many years after Hayward High. Their life was different here. Now, what I want to suggest here is that there's an exaggeration of the benefits of the world outside our walls. And this is what Asaph is kind of helping us see as we look back here. See what he said in verse 10, therefore his people turn, turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? In other words, there's people that are asking the question, does God really know what's going on here? God doesn't care. God doesn't know about your life, doesn't know about our life. And there's this sense of that Asaph is starting to identify what all the they's and those people, he's using that concept, those people that I'm looking at, he says, their life is not being honest about the realities of what they're really going through. But he was envious of them. He saw them as arrogant, as violent, as pleasure-seeking, as selfish, had all these imaginations run wild. They did whatever they wanted to do. And for a while, he became a skeptic. He was the worship leader, remember? Asaph was a worship leader, but during that season of worship leading, he found himself struggling about these many things. Well, he goes on here and says, here's the essence of crisis. And so that's another idea here I'd like for us to really think through here, and we're going to get into the issue of prayer in just a minute, because I know that's what our theme is in our church family right now. But um, I'll take my glasses off so I can see better. <laughs> um, <laughs> Verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Do you have a quiet longing to have that kind of easy life in increasing with riches? Because there's some people that love to tout that. And there's a time that we can go, oh, man, 
wouldn't that be great to have an easy life and to be increasing in riches by doing whatever I want to do and not have the pain and struggle? I don't know everybody's life, but I tell you, life can be hard. And day-to-day life can be hard. And this world in which we live can be hard. Living in the Bay Area can be hard, can be expensive, can be difficult. There's all sorts of things that go on around us here. But notice what he says here is that he has an essence of crisis that starts to happen in his life. And in verse 13 he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. In other words, all in vain is the idea here that he is, it's like cotton candy. Have you ever had cotton candy where you would taste it and it just dissolves in your mouth? It's not, there's nothing of quality and, and, and sturdiness to that. It just dissolves. And he says that's what life is like in vain or a waste of time have I kept my heart. He's starting to doubt, was it right for me to keep my heart clean? Was it right for me to to walk this way and to wash my hands in innocence. For all day long, he says in verse 14, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. What a waste of time to keep my heart pure, he's saying. He's kind of surmising this. He's starting to have this sense of doubt. Was it right for me to keep my heart right and innocent? Because, man, every day it's a struggle. It's heart. Um, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. I wake up going, oh, here we go again. Here's another day just like yesterday or maybe even worse than yesterday. And he has this great sense of questioning about the value to him of what he's going through here. I've been rebuked every morning, verse 14 says. In verse 15, he gets this. He says, if I had said this, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Okay, here's now where we get into this issue of doubting his faith. He doubted the faith, so much so that he felt like it was a waste of time to stay in the faith, to stay walking with God, to walk the faith. Now, I have a quote here from Pastor John Piper that I thought was very helpful. He says this. I think it's on the screen behind me here. It says, if you want something bad enough, and believe that the truth will take it away from you, you will see truth as error and remain enslaved to what you want. The blinding power of human want is absolutely staggering. Now, again, this is John Piper who's saying this, and I relate to this at a couple seasons in my life. Maybe you relate to it at a different season as well. But that is that if you want something bad enough, Things you know are the truth won't matter to you anymore because you're going to be enslaved to the the error because you long for it so much, it now becomes dominant in your life. Uh, There's an old Calvinist named John Calvin. Well, of course, he was a Calvinist because his name is John Calvin. But he used to say, the heart is the chief idol maker. And it's our own hearts become the idol factory. We create idols in our heart by things we look at and think about and desire for ourselves that nobody else maybe even knows that. But we say, if I could have that, 
or if I could do that, or if I could be that, I know it'd be so satisfying that I'd be good, I'd be fine, it would work itself out. And so to have your own heart be an idol factory, we have to be cautious and say, wow, is my heart an idol factory here? But here's what we also learn about doubting in faith, the essence of crisis. The, the crisis is when we start quietly, skeptically doubting our faith, questioning it deeply, and number two, we win it alone in the crisis of faith. In other words, we stay quiet about the doubt we're struggling with. We stay quiet about the doubt we're struggling with. Again, we're probably not doubters sitting here today on a Sunday afternoon in the sanctuary. But what about Monday through Saturday? What doubts or skeptical thoughts are we taking in or allowing in our soul talk to keep us going? Now, did you know there's a lot of other places in the Bible where godly people went through serious questions. Okay, let me, let me read just a couple of them here. Uh, John 14, verse 5. This is a whole passage of three chapters that Jesus is speaking, but tucked away in these three full chapters in the book of John is verse 14, 5. And this is a guy by the name of Doubting Thomas. And here's what Thomas says after Jesus has just said to all the disciples in that room, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. And he goes, it's a beautiful section here, John chapter 14. But in the middle of that, Thomas is quoted as saying this. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are growing. How can we know the way? So here's Jesus speaking to the disciples, but Thomas is saying, yeah, right, God. Yeah, right, Jesus. How do we really know the way? And he, as a number of other times, he's known as Doubting Thomas because he raised questions of skepticism and doubt. Now, my point is it's not wrong to have doubts, but you have to be very careful who you share those doubts with. And you want to have the right people, um, the people that are God-honoring and thoughtful, who can listen to your doubts and walk with you patiently in your doubting. Many of us have had doubts or go through doubting. Maybe even right now somebody's doubting. My point is that it's not wrong to have doubts. It's not a sin to have doubts. But if we turn to the wrong people or just spit it out to just anybody, those doubts are going to come back and haunt us or struggle it or we're going to be encouraged in them. And to have the sense of wisdom and strength to know what doubting, um, to, where to find help in our time of doubts. The book of Habakkuk um, also has interesting thoughts. Habakkuk chapter 1. You don't need to turn there, but if you want to, you can. It's in chapter 1. Uh, Habakkuk was a prophet, and here's a question that he asked out loud. O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Wow. To be a 
Christian person or a person who goes to a Christian church or to have godly friends, it's hard to say that question. How long, O oh Lord, am I going to go through this? Some of us have gone through personal diseases in our family life or our friends' lives, maybe your own life, your own body. And there's a time sometimes we have these doubts to say, how long, oh Lord, is this going to go on? There's many other situations you go, how long am I going to experience this or that or go through this? And we know that from Habakkuk, and there's a lot of other questions in Habakkuk and other books of the Old Testament and New Testament, and we know from Thomas himself, there's a lot of times we go through these seasons of question or doubt. We struggle. There's a quiet or an anxiety or a, uh, we're dismayed that we're feeling this way or thinking this. It's like, how can I feel this way? Because I don't know if other Christians think the same things I think. And so this is where my point is from God's word. It's important to be careful um, where you go. And so the axiom that I hope we can follow or learn is that it is not wise to speak one's doubts to just anyone. So just let me encourage all of us to not just feel the question or the soul talk or the doubt and then just not speak it to just anybody out there, but choose the right person or the right people or the people of God who can listen and walk together because this is where we have to be wise about this. But now there's a beautiful, amazing turning point in this crisis of doubt that Asaph was going through. It shows up in verse um, well, in verse 16, he says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me to be a wearisome task. In other words, he was about done. He was like saying, I'm getting so tired, it's wearisome to go through these questions, these thoughts, and I can't share it with our, I'd betray the other believers if I were to say it out loud. And so he didn't feel he had the freedom to share it with other uh, I'm calling them Christians, but other Bible-believing or Christian or uh, people of God that he was speaking about. Until, verse 17, he went into the sanctuary of God, then he discerned their end. This is what I'm going to call the until then principle. So the turning point in this crisis of doubt was when he turned to the sanctuary of God himself and let God speak directly to him. And this is where I want to lead us today and kind of as we begin to wrap this up because of the idea that I know you're in a season of prayer as a church family of individuals during the week and on Sundays. I want to suggest and encourage all of us this until then, this turning point, until... You can hear God's voice for yourself in God's word. The sanctuary of God could be this building where you gather with the people of God. But the sanctuary is wherever God is present. And so he's present with you seven days a week, not just on Sunday at 1.30. Now, at your home, where you live, maybe there's a chair that's the sanctuary at your house. Maybe there's a portion of the Bible that you love so much. Um, you say, I just got to go back to that verse or that section. 
or maybe there's a backyard or a porch, or maybe it's even at work, or I don't know, maybe it's going for a walk. Maybe it's out in nature. Maybe it's at a park. But where is that place where the sanctuary of God gets your attention? Where God, through his Holy Spirit, is saying things that are true to the word of God. And I just don't want to believe anything you hear or feel. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying just get out there and let it rip. I'm just saying that we need to kind of be aware that it's God's word that become, it speaks to my heart. There's God's word. There's a verse or a section of scripture or meditation with God where you're really you seeking God's voice. You're seeking God's face and the Holy Spirit of God who will never contradict the Bible. So if something you're feeling or thinking contradicts the Bible, you know it's not God. But if it is consistent with the scriptures or it's in the scriptures, it's God's Holy Spirit that is enlightening, sharpening your mind and your heart. And it's giving you a sense of direction and peace and help in your time of need. And so this is what I think Asaph is saying here. Until... I went into the sanctuary of God, then, there's the until then principle, until I met with God, then I discerned their end. Who's the there? It's all those people he was concerned about, he was imitating, he was envious of. Do we really consider their end, the result of that life, that lifestyle, that mindset, that perspective that is godless? Do we consider the realities of those people and what's going to happen to them, what they're, what they're really like? And notice what he says here in verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Now back to Facebook. We see smiling faces. We see vacations. We see spending money. We see the new house. We see great food at some restaurant. We see they're at a wedding. And nothing wrong with weddings and nothing wrong with dressing up. I'm not saying that. But the point is, do we really understand the end result of those persons' lives? Have we really thought about what their life is like either a few years from now or when they're older, or when they die? Have we thought about the end result of their life without God, without Jesus, without a conviction to live how God wants them to live by God's word? And so he has this whole thought here. How they're, verse 19, verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like, like a dream when one awakes, oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. He's giving now, he's kind of, he got into the sanctuary of God and he's beginning to think about and realize what the end results are like. I don't know how often we've gone to the ocean if you've gone to the ocean and you have a special beach, maybe you find it. And we have a pretty amazing coastline here in California. But there's a lot of big rocks as well. But there's sleeper waves and there's rip curls, rip currents, I should say. And there's a lot of, every once in a while you hear about somebody that's swept off a rock or they're just swept away by the waves. 
And that's the picture that the psalmist is saying here. He's saying it's like they're lollygagging around. They're just walking down the beach, and a wave just comes and crashes in over them. And I don't know how many friends of ours, people that you know and I know, have lived their life as if life's okay, but a wave crashes over them. And they are just devastated, or they're caught off guard, or they're knocked off their feet, or they're just knocked off the rock, whatever, you want to, whatever analogy you want to use. But that's the picture that Asaph is saying in 700 BC. He's saying it's like they're destroyed in a moment, swept utterly by terrors. And like when a dream, when they awake, Lord, you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And notice what he says then in verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Here's the worship leader claiming that he had a season of life where he became just deeply concerned and crazy about what's going on. He was brutish about life. Nevertheless, here's his conclusion in verse 23, and this is my urging for all of us as we walk forward here. The benefit of the crisis of faith, what it left him with is this. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Okay, let me pause right there. Life sometimes to any of us can knock us off our feet. It can, it's a big wave that crashes over us. You go, how did that happen? Or what am I going to do with this? But here's this psalmist who's given this picture here. But I am continually with you, God. You hold my right hand. It's the idea there that God is reaching down and grabbing his hand and walking with him. And I want to invite all of us to think about that. Do you have a relationship with God no matter where you are now, no matter what you've been through, no matter how hard it was or it is, that God will reach out and hold your hand by your right hand. And there's a, a sense that he is now walking with you, female or male, old or young, it doesn't matter, that there's a sturdy hold on your hand and walking with you. And he says, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Here's a beautiful picture here that when you get honest with yourselves and honest with God is a key. And so I think that's on the notes, but friends, are you honest with yourself and honest with God about yourself and honest with God about who he is? And so the next principle here is that the end of our wisdom is the beginning of becoming wise. When we stopped thinking that we have all the insights and wisdom and our own knowledge of how we've lived our life, but now we can be, start to become wise by his knowledge, walking with him in this special way. Nevertheless, verse 23, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. You know, I am a, I'm 68 years old right now, and I don't know how many more years I have. I mean, I hope I have some more years, but 
I mean, I'm getting up there, everybody. And even if you're not up there, a bus could hit me tomorrow, right? And any of you. Now, I'm not saying this to scare anybody. I'm just saying that we need to live our life with the reality that someday we're going to meet God face to face. And we're going to have a, a sense of his, we're going to be humbled by him no matter what our life's been like. Amazing, awesome, beautiful, truthful God is going to welcome us if we're a believer. If we're not a believer, we're, we're going to be abandoned by God. We'll be destitute in what the Bible calls hell or forever living in darkness, separated from love and God and compassion and grace and just the opposite. The Bible gives all sorts of other language about gnashing of teeth and terrors. That's real for the non-believer. For the believer, we have an amazing, amazing hope and confidence and courage. No matter what our life was like in the past, he will give us grace and love and a future and permanence and love forever. And so this is what I think the psalmist is getting at, too. He goes, you guide me with your counsel, verse 24, and afterward you will receive me to glory. And I love these last couple of verses. Whom do I have in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. What a, what a thought. Whom do I have in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire Besides you. So you want to covet something? Covet God. Covet a life with God. Grow with God. Love God with all your heart because the blessing, the reality, the truth, the grace, the love is permanent and it's eternal. And whether you die when you're 95 or whether you die tomorrow in 90 minutes, it doesn't matter. There's a beautiful sense there of there's nothing on earth I desire beside you. In verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. I'm frail. You're frail. I had a heart experience. I have a stint in my heart one year ago. I didn't know my heart had a problem. But the echocardiogram showed me that I had 70% blockage in my main artery. Had no idea. The machine showed that. And I don't know what would happen if the machine hadn't have shown that. But they saw it on the, the echocardiogram at Kaiser that I had a 70% blockage in my heart and they put a stint in on the spot. Now, thank the Lord for medicine, but all I'm saying is we don't know the condition of our body sometimes and we're going to have surprises here. But my heart may fail and your heart may fail. But God, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Not for next week, not next year, forever. God is the strength of my heart. For behold, verse 27, those who are far from you shall perish, and you put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. So his point is, if you've been unfaithful to God forever and never had faith and trust in him, you will be lost or abandoned by God when you die. It's not because he's, you're, you're uh, set apart this human life. But for me, he says in verse 28, 
it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. There's that contrast again. But as for me, it is good. It is good to be near God. That's what he said in the very first verse. Remember that? Hey, he's good to Israel, to all the people of God who have faith. He's good. And then he goes through all the things that he struggled with. So he started the chapter that way, and now he's ending it that way. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that or so that I may tell of all your works. So friends, and you are friends, in Christ there's an affection as friends. We belong to each other. But here's the conclusion. He says that any of us, this is 700 years B.C., he says, it's good. It's good to be near God. My question, are you near God? And it goes on to say, I've made the Lord God my refuge. Is the Lord God your refuge, your hiding place, your safe place, that you, no matter your life story, you can reach up and his hand is grasping your hand and holding you, that I may tell of your works. I know a lot of you tell of his works, and I think that's the prayer and plea, is that all of us would be those people who can tell of his works, because each of you and I, we each have an audience of people that no one else has. We have the people that God's given us as a relationships around us. And so each one of you can reach or love or care or bring help to somebody else that somebody else cannot. And so who's in your world? Who might be that person that you can reach to and, and tell of the good works of God in your life through a testimony and show interest and compassion to them and patience with them because we all need patience, right? And so I hope that by this uh, psalm, in this season of prayer life as a church, and your own, if you're fasting or if you're having some certain times of prayer, that you'll have a chance to meditate on this chapter again. And alone with God in the sanctuary, wherever that is for you, if it's this building, fine. If it's at your home, it's in the backyard, it's on a walk, it's wherever it is, that you will think about God's love, truth, and, and warmth to draw you close to him. The nearness of God is your only good. Let me close in prayer as we think about this together.